When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hello there, history friends. You're about to listen to the latest episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project, brought to you by the wonderful, wonderful supporters of this podcast on Patreon. In so far as, thanks to their support, we are actually able to do ridiculously detailed analyses of things like reparations. Who cares about reparations? Well, I do. And because I'm given all of this support, I'm able to actually spend a good amount of time on this subject and deliver it to you with the detail and panache that you deserve. Not really sure what panache means, but I'm sure that I'm bringing it to you in this episode. The great thing about Patreon, in case you somehow were not aware, 51 episodes in about me talking about it, is that you guys support me, but you get something pretty cool back in return. Several people have signed up and said that, well, they're really enjoying what they get back. And what do they get back? Well, for $5 a month, you can access The Suez Crisis, which is a special series you won't get anywhere else, and where we detail perhaps the greatest British folly that ever was. If you weren't aware what the Suez Crisis involved, it involved an awful lot of scheming, a lot of backhanded diplomacy, as the British tried to take back the Suez Canal, and in order to give themselves something of a cover, they used an Egyptian-Israeli war to do it, and also they cooperated with France as well, because why the heck not? When the full extent of their scheming and conspiracy was learned of, it produced a massive scandal, of course, and everyone was very, very upset, and also, if you were Anthony Eden, the Prime Minister at the time, quite embarrassed. It's a great story, it's a story that really has to be heard to be believed, and it comes to you as part of 1956. That series which also includes a look 
at what happened once Stalin died and the Soviet Union tried to liberalise itself in a sense. Which was a policy that led in time to revolts in Poland and Hungary. Basically 1956 is a very, very obscure series because it looks at things that most of the time do not really enter into textbooks or mainstream narratives of history in the 20th century. 1956 is a really eventful year, as the name of that series suggests, but because it's caught between events like the Korean War and the Cuban Missile Crisis, it rarely gets a look-in or the attention that it deserves. Which is a shame, because as I've learned from researching and writing and potting all about it, 1956 is one of the most important and one of the most interesting years that the Cold War produced. Pretty much because, at virtually the same time, the Soviets and the British and French were doing some pretty underhanded things. Both of these stories, the de-Stalinization process and the Suez Crisis, are stories you won't get anywhere else. And if you're interested in the, well, I suppose you could call it early Cold War era, then you should look no further than Suez. Or de-Stalinization and the Soviet intervention into Hungary. Maybe it's taken you a while, maybe you're never intending to support on Patreon and that's fine. I just ask that you do not hate me for putting in these plugs at the beginning, because this is how I make my living, guys. If you are, on the other hand, interested in supporting, maybe you just needed that nudge to go and support. And I would encourage you to do so, because The Suez Crisis has several episodes backdated that you can access. You can chow down on one of the greatest stories that happened in the 20th century. And you can do so safe in the knowledge that you're also supporting me and helping to make history thrive. What could be better than that? I would say nothing. Although, then again... Cadbury chocolate buttons are pretty damn awesome, so maybe that's better than that. But we're not giving you buttons, we're giving you an extra hour of audio content every month. If an extra hour isn't your thing, then check out the fact that for $1 a month, you can access the 10-part series, Louis XIV's Arms and Armies. That's right, 10 parts. You can even just sign up for a dollar, and then after a month, cancel, having listened to the 10-part series. Over 5 hours of content, guys, awaits you just for spending $1 a month. Where on earth in the world would you get such a great deal like that? Nowhere, I say. And at the same time, of course, you're supporting this podcast and helping it to grow. $2, of course, gets you that. What also gets you the episodes every single week with the scripts attached. And you don't have to hear me ramble in the beginning or get any of those ads that Acast delivers to you. Surely you know the drill by now for $6, so a dollar more than the... $5 tier, of course, you can play the delegation game, which several people are playing and super enjoying. Even though a lot of delegates have died and it's gotten a bit messy and a bit troubling, it's still going super well, and it's never too late to join, so do check that out. Information about all of these things can be found in the description below, guys, and I have to say a huge thanks to you for putting up with me as we do these advertisement things in the beginning. I'm sure most of you skip them anyway, but maybe you just like to hear me rambling and talking about how this podcast has grown. 2019 is going to be a really super year for this show. It's already been really exciting to see how When Diplomacy Fells has grown over the last few years. 2018 was really quite something. 2019 is going to be even better. I have some really fantastic plans. So thanks so much for sticking with us. and I hope you enjoy the latest episode.
You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 51. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 51. So in the previous episode, we traced the reparations question, and in the process, we reached some surprising conclusions about the Big Three and their perspectives on the question. We finished last time with a note on Woodrow Wilson's inconsistency, as he bowed down to Lloyd George's insistence on including civilian damages within the final reparations bill. In this episode, we continue our reparations coverage by beginning with some shocking revelations about where the Allies actually stood on the question of reparations versus where the conventional narrative of the debate has led us to believe they all stood. As a spoiler alert, the British Prime Minister David Lloyd George does not come off particularly well in this episode, and we're about to find out why. Without any further ado, I will now take you all to late March 1919. I wish, said one American financial expert, that Mr. Lloyd George could just tell us what he finally wants so that we could determine whether his ideas and the President's, as we understood them to be, are in reality far apart or close together. Of all the leaders at Paris, when it came to the question of reparations, Lloyd George was the most difficult to work out and unquestionably the most inconsistent. On one occasion, he opposed Australian Premier Billy Hughes' initial proposals for wresting millions of pounds from the Germans, but shortly afterwards, he appointed Hughes as head of a committee packed with other hardliners, whose task it was to arrive at a bill which would be presented to Germany. This committee, created in early March and filled with hardliner British and Empire delegates, was too much even for some of its attendees. Altogether, it was the oddest committee I ever served upon, remarked one Canadian member, adding that the committee's purpose was to make the Hun pay for the utmost, whether it leads to a generation of occupancy and direction or not, and forgetful of the results otherwise. Lloyd George never ceased to vacillate on the reparations issue. This has traditionally been taken as evidence of his inner struggles over politics. The Prime Minister had, after all, promised his electorate during the 1918 general election that Germany would be squeezed until the pips literally squeaked. This was the same man who had appointed known hardliners to committees, or took advice from them, only to complain about their extremism in later conversations with the Americans. It should be stated that the British, and to a lesser extent the Empire delegations, obeyed their Prime Minister to the letter. There was no British delegate in Paris who was flying the Union Jack who refused to obey Lloyd George, and yet the Welshman frequently gave the impression that the hardliners were behaving recklessly, and that it was not within his power to rein them in. We must consider his political stance, but also his moral fibre. Lloyd George despised war on principle, and he believed that Germany was responsible for unleashing the worst war seen in human history, as he told the Empire delegation. By every principle of justice, Lloyd George said, by the principles of justice which were recognised as applicable between individuals, the Germans were liable for the whole of the damages and the cost of recovering them. The whole of the damages. This did not seem like a man unsure of how to proceed, and yet Lloyd George had to temper this approach with bare economic facts, which he would have been in tune with thanks to his previous gig as Chancellor of the Exchequer. If Germany was destroyed, then Britain would suffer economically because she would not be able to sell her goods to her. In House's diary, we have the Prime Minister admitting openly that he knew Germany would never be able to pay what the Allies demanded. In early March, Lloyd George listened to House over lunch that he was trying to find a reason he could present to his electorate to justify having fooled them. 
Was this simply a case of Lloyd George's election campaign promises coming under scrutiny? And does his desire to delay the inevitable reveal that he could not make these pips squeak after all? This would explain Lloyd George's reluctance, as well as his lack of clarity regarding what he wanted, but was he really so unsure deep down? Did a small part of him not want to punish Germany and make her feel the war? Certainly in secret cabinet minutes, recorded in late 1918, Lloyd George comes across as a very different statesman from that which he presented to the world in spring 1919. In the minutes of late 1918, we are confronted with an extract which states, The Prime Minister said that industrial France had been devastated and Germany had escaped. At the first moment when we were in a position to put the lash on Germany's back, she said, I give up. The question arose whether we ought to not continue lashing her as she had lashed France. Mr Chamberlain said that vengeance was too expensive these days. The Prime Minister said that it was not vengeance, but justice. You see, we don't need to list the mess of committees and subcommittees, thankfully, since a new one appeared to take shape almost every day. But in late February, the Big Three did appoint a delegate each to sit on a committee which would arrive at some kind of final figure. It was here that, more than ever, the moderation of the French and the hardline stance of the British looms into view. And no, that isn't an editing error on my part. I didn't mean to say French and actually said British or vice versa. The British really were the ones driving the harder bargain with regard to reparations. For the next few weeks, this three-way dance between British, American and French interests played out. As the figure suggested, gradually shrank from its original high of $200 billion to the more reasonable sum of $50 billion. But the British delegate urged Lloyd George to be careful, as it seemed the French and Americans were privately cooperating. I cannot say what the bargain is, this delegate remarked, but the result is that we shall be practically left out in the cold. Lloyd George simply attempted to justify his high price, saying in early March that since the British had been the chief financiers of the war, it was intelligible that the French and Italians would not be so greatly concerned about the size of the indemnity as ourselves. This was a good point which is often ignored. The assumption that the vengeful French asked for more money than anyone else, buoyed by John Maynard Keynes's picture of them, obscured the fact that it was in fact the British who had poured more money into the war than any other power. It has to be said that the conventional image of the grasping French not only holds little water, since documentary evidence shows the French perfectly willing to be moderate, but it also makes very little sense. Of course, the British, as the power with the most money vested in the conflict, should want to receive the most money back after the war's end. If we consider the large sums of money which Britain had spent, the political promises which Lloyd George had made and the anger towards Germany which he felt himself, then it surely makes perfect sense that the British demanded the largest reparations during the peace conference. While the French concerns were similar in many aspects and French soil had been violated, these considerations were evidently not sufficient to move the French to make aggressive claims on Germany's money, at least not throughout the entirety of the conference. The unfairness of the French mistreatment by the histories is only underlined by further evidence. When, on the 15th of March, Lloyd George was shown the figure of $30 billion in reparations, which the three delegates had arrived at, he cried out against the smallness of the figure, according to the French observer. Three days later, on the 18th of March, Edwin Montague, the Secretary of State for India, and the man originally chosen to represent Britain on that three-man committee, was replaced by a known hardliner, a judge called Lord Sumner.
The reason given was due to the death of Montague's mother, but this does not explain the subsequent absence of that moderate British delegate for the remainder of the deliberations on reparations. Historian Mark Trachtenberg was certain that Montague's replacing with Sumner must be seen as a political move, and there is further evidence for this theory. In early June, when Lloyd George began to have serious doubts about the sustainability of the High Reparations Bill, he attempted to rope Montague and another expert back in to fix the problem. But Montague had evidently taken the snub personally, and a man who was given leave to pay his final respects to a loved one surely wouldn't feel so slighted. Noting to the other man who had been selected by Lloyd George to join him on this last-minute exercise, Montague is recorded as saying that he regretted that he could not go in the matter with me, but he was sure that he would not be given the authority and backed up in case he came to an agreement that he had tried that once already and that he would not do so again. The big problem with the revisionist idea that Lloyd George was in favour of harsh reparations settlement until the final weeks of the Paris Peace Conference is challenged by the famous memorandum which the Prime Minister put about in late March. The Fontainebleau Memorandum has been preserved since as an example of Lloyd George's moderation, which two writers like Keynes and others served as retrospective evidence that he must have opted for a more moderate monetary settlement, despite all evidence to the contrary. In other words, if Lloyd George did in fact desire a large sum of money, and much more money than his counterparts, why would he issue this call for moderation? Well, what have I told you that the Fontainebleau Memorandum contained moderate elements, but that it was largely silent on the issue of reparations as a whole? The historian Mark Trachtenberg wrote that, Although Lloyd George set out the argument for a mild peace in the famous Fontainebleau Memorandum, the noble rhetoric of this document cannot be taken at face value. There was no opting for a moderate figure, and in reality the Fontainebleau Memorandum marked no change in actual British reparations policy which, in its essentials, remained as unbending as ever. The Fontainebleau Memorandum was circulated to Lloyd George's colleagues on the Council of Four on the 25th of March. In it, he declared that We ought to endeavour to draw up a peace settlement as if we were impartial arbiters, forgetful of the passions of the war. These sentiments were noble, but it appears that Lloyd George was talking mainly about the territorial settlement and not the reparations clauses. When the Council of Four discussed the memorandum in more detail on the 27th of March, Lloyd George rhetorically asked, What did France resent more, the loss of Alsace-Lorraine or the obligation to pay an indemnity of five billion francs? I know your answer in advance. What impressed me the first time I went to Paris most was the Statue of Strasbourg in mourning. Lloyd George's point was that territory, and not money, was the kicker for defeated nations, and it was the fuel that sparked off wars of revenge. Thus, the Germans must not be placed under Polish rule, but anything else, Lloyd George declared, the Germans would accept, including, the minutes record the Prime Minister as saying, a very heavy indemnity. It is therefore high time that we took the issue of reparations away from the French ledger of sins and placed it instead in the British list. Such an idea may well seem like dynamite, especially if you're used to the notion that the French were the more greedy and selfish. Yet, short of Keynes's inflammatory statements and those historians that subsequently adopted his arguments, no genuine evidence exists to support the idea that France wanted more money than the British. In addition, evidence points to the fact that the British were much more difficult over the issue of reparations than the French were. 
The French at least knew that they wanted to set out the sum as quickly as possible, but Lloyd George went from a high number to becoming suspiciously silent on the whole idea of putting forward a number at all. Mark Trachtenberg, whose revisionist article really set the ball rolling on the issue for me, concludes on the Prime Minister's culpability in the reparations debacle. He said, Whether or not Lloyd George in his heart desired a moderate reparations settlement is beside the point. For whatever reason, the reparation policy of the British delegation was markedly more unyielding than that of any other Allied delegation. It was British policy, especially British intransigence on figures, that was ultimately responsible for the failure of the treaty to include a fixed sum. The French and American delegates evidently wanted a figure. The latter repeatedly argued that the uncertain atmosphere that would prevail if the treaty failed to name a fixed sum would be disastrous to all concerned, to Germany as well as the West. In particular, a restoration of the international credit system was dependent upon a fixed sum. No one would lend Germany anything, it was argued, if the amount due for reparations were not limited, for the money would otherwise be used to repay such loans that might have to go into paying reparation. But unable to borrow, Germany would be unable to procure working capital, and the reparation annuities would not begin to be paid, let alone mobilised through the sale of reparations bonds abroad. We simply have never been told about the fact that during a Council of Four meeting on the 26th of March, it was Clemenceau that simultaneously provided the voice of reason and the voice of urgency. Progress must be made on the reparations issue, Clemenceau declared, for the sake of French rebuilding and stability. He proposed a radical solution to the reparations problem by suggesting that the Treaty of Peace would set down the minimum and maximum parameters, and that each year the Allies would determine how much the Germans would pay until the final sum of money had been paid. Incredibly, Clemenceau further declared that the government could reserve the right to make further cuts in these figures, and could even suppress the minimum if it became clear that this was more than Germany could pay. In other words, if the minimum parameter proved too large an amount, then France was willing to accommodate Germany to see that she was able to pay off a portion of the sum. The revelations do not stop there, though. What is really striking about this meeting on the 26th of March is that Clemenceau even declared his willingness to discuss the question with the Germans themselves, a point later reiterated by Louis Lucher, a French representative on the Reparations Commission, who echoed Clemenceau's point when he said, There remains the possibility of not definitively setting our figure before discussing it with the Germans at Versailles. It is remarkable that in discussions that followed, and in spite of the conciliatory language of the Fontainebleau Memorandum circulated the previous day, Lloyd George completely ignored this conciliatory French suggestion. As for Wilson, he also paid no attention to the idea. Keynes also gave it minimal attention, preferring to focus instead on the behaviour and appearance of Louis Lucien Klotz, the French finance minister. A short, plump, heavily moustached Jew, Keynes noted. Well-groomed, well-kept, but with an unsteady, roving eye, and his shoulders bent in an instinctive deprecation. Keynes blamed Klotz for starving Germany and withholding food imports, and for loudly proclaiming the high bills Germans would have to foot. Yet Keynes seemed unable to distinguish between the real versus the declared policy of France. In public, Klotz insisted on a high price, but in private, Klotz was under orders from Clemenceau that there was no chance France would ever get all that it desired. Clemenceau repeatedly sent the aforementioned Louis Lucher on private meetings to House to talk more about moderate terms, wherein it was often expressed 
that there were few advantages to be had for France if Germany was forced into bankruptcy. As Margaret Macmillan noted, The picture, painted so vividly by Keynes and others of a vindictive France, intent on grinding Germany down, begins to dissolve. It is hardly a surprise that Clemenceau maintained a harsh line in public. Remember, he was under considerable pressure from the right and the left all at once, just as his counterparts were in Britain and the United States. Who ought to be ruined? asked one headline in the conservative French newspaper, Le Matin. France or Germany? The answer was not so simple, of course, but it was impossible for Clemenceau to show clemency, so long as the matter was felt to be so black and white. Now, this did not mean that Clemenceau was privately advising moderation out of the goodness of his heart. The Premier's reasons for doing so are threefold. First and foremost, Clemenceau did not want to alienate the Americans by demanding too high a figure, and since he believed that America's role in the French defence was the more important issue, he was willing to roll back the rhetoric a tad when conversing with Wilson, if that meant the President would be willing to solidify an agreement which tied France, Britain and the United States to a defensive alliance after the war. That was Clemenceau's major political goal, to preserve the alliance which had won the war against Germany, and which would be expected to win any resumption of the war in the future. Secondary to that question, when considering reparations, was the plain fact that Germany could not afford the large bills which were presented. It would do France no good to economically ruin her neighbour, because this would remove an important trading partner, but also kill any potential reparations which could be gained. The third consideration was more political. Clemenceau realised early on that to argue for reimbursement among the Allies of all war costs would actually mean that Britain received more than France. France may have suffered more, but the British actually spent more and had the larger bills. Thus, to offset this fact, French negotiators were ordered to change their tactics and demand not reimbursement for all war costs, but reimbursement for damage directly inflicted. Within this category could be included the woes of the citizenry, if desired. The extent of the destruction wrought by the Germans in the French northeast was no secret, and Clemenceau was content to make loud pronouncements about it in regular intervals. We have seen him do this in the record of the minutes for the Council of Ten and Council of Four meetings, but he also had his comments recorded carefully by the French press. The barbarians of whom history spoke, boomed Clemenceau in one report, took all that they found in the territories invaded by them, but destroyed nothing, they settled down to share the common existence. Now, however, the enemy had systematically destroyed everything that came in its way. Clemenceau would absolutely have taken a higher figure if the Americans had approved and the Germans had been able to pay, but he adapted his sense of justice and vengeance to suit the moment, whereas Lloyd George allowed these same senses to override political reason and delay a final financial settlement. It wasn't as though the French had always been moderate, though. Initially, they had approached Versailles with a very swollen figure indeed. French negotiators gradually reduced their asking price, though, when it became very clear that the Allies were not willing to play ball. By late February, French policy had seen fit to reduce the final figure by three quarters, but it was then the British who refused to go any lower. By the final week of March, the inability of the Allies to agree on a final figure made everything more complicated. If the presentation of a final figure to the Germans was impossible, then what was the alternative? Why not come up with the figure later and make the Germans accept whatever was decided upon in advance? Unorthodox and clunky though this seemed to many, this approach was eventually confirmed, largely because of Lloyd George's intransigence. 
The French even compromised on the share of the reparations which they would receive. In the final deal agreed by late 1920, it was accepted that the French would accept 52% of the reparations, where the British would receive 28% and the balance would go to everyone else. Originally, Clemenceau had wanted 70% of the reparations, but just like in every other stage of the reparations negotiations, the French Premier quietly compromised. The notion of postponing the decision on a precise figure for reparations was accepted after initial opposition, but there was no doubt as to its unpopularity among that party which was meant to agree to its potentially limitless tenets, the Germans. When the German delegation did finally arrive at Versailles to be handed the terms in the first week of May, there was understandable bitterness that the lack of any stated figure would place Germany's government in an impossible situation. No limit is fixed save the capacity of the German people for payment, exclaimed one member of that delegation in horror. The figure will be determined not by the standard of life, but solely by our capacity to meet the demands of our enemies by our labour. The German people will thus be condemned to perpetual slave labour. Yet the concerns of the Germans were tossed aside in favour of kicking the can down the road for the umpteenth time and focusing on matters other than the all-consuming reparations issue. The Reparations Commission would carry this burden into 1921, but by that point, as predicted, the burning anger towards Germany, in Britain and America particularly, had significantly cooled. Of course, this cooling in feeling did not mean that everything ran smoothly once time was called on the Reparation Commission's deliberations. The 1920s remained years of contention and retrospective reflection as contemporaries wondered whether they had done the right thing. From all these decisions and procrastination did those two infamous articles of the Treaty of Versailles, Article 231 and 232, emerge. These two articles, which we will examine in more detail later, established first the legal basis for these reparations by confirming German responsibility for the war, the so-called War Guilt Clause. Second, it set out the limits of what Germany could pay, based on the plain fact that Germany's resources were limited, so the liability should not be unlimited. That was essentially that. The sky would not be the limit on the final figure, but the Germans were not to be assured of much else. These articles, which were later to arouse such passionate fury among the Germans under a very different leader, with fury directed towards France in particular, ironically only came about because the British would not agree to set a final figure in the Treaty of Versailles. In addition, the British Prime Minister refused to accept other estimates or parameters which granted Britain less money than he felt she needed. If it wasn't clear yet, it is very much time to change what we think we know about the Paris Peace Conference. Far from the stubborn and selfish French, it was in fact the grasping and politically tied British Prime Minister who surprised us all. Rather than Clemenceau's oft-reported demand for a large indemnity from Germany, it would be more appropriate to focus on what really grinded the Allied gears. That is, Clemenceau's consistent urges to be granted some kind of jurisdiction over the Rhineland and to preserve intact the wartime alliance. Both of these demands were politically sensitive for Clemenceau's opposites. Handing over the Rhineland would mean, after all, the repudiation of the self-determination idea. Those Rhineland Germans hardly desired to come under the rule of Paris, and whatever Clemenceau might say of old historical trends and the recent advent of the German Empire, the fact was it was now impossible to turn back the clock to before 1871. Not just 1871, but 1815 was where Clemenceau wanted to turn the clock. The Tsarland had once been a picturesque backdrop of rolling hills and forest, 
but the discovery of coal and the subsequent industrial revolution transformed the Tsar region into one of Germany's most lucrative and productive coal mining regions. Clemenceau was eager that France should have it, but Wilson was not impressed. You base your claim, the president said, on what took place 104 years ago. We cannot readjust Europe on the basis of conditions that existed in such a remote period. The last week of March did not go quietly, and we are given perhaps some hint of why figures like Wilson compromised on the question of reparations when we are reminded that, on the 21st of March, news reached the Big Four that the Bolsheviks had seized power in Budapest. Reparations was only one item on a long and contentious list that the Allies would have to work through. Clemenceau wanted the Rhineland, assurances and guarantees about an alliance with Britain and France if he could get it, and rights over industrial regions like the Tsar as insurance. Clemenceau wanted a specific figure of reparations, but in exchange for these aforementioned carrots, he was willing to be as moderate as possible when it came to the final butcher's bill. He probably did not expect Lloyd George to have his way so completely and to delay the entire decision-making process surrounding reparations. If there was to be no decision on figures, then he would focus on those matters which truly concerned him and continue his quest to wrest binding guarantees from his allies. Lloyd George maintained a calm exterior, but he was deeply vexed by the events of the last two weeks of March. He remained consistent in his opposition to Polish encroachment over ethnically German land, as well as the contentious coal fields in Silesia. He was wary, indeed, of allowing the French to annex the Tsar or to formulate extensive rights over the Rhineland generally. Public opinion at home waxed and waned, depending on the source, between wanting a harsh peace with Germany and making a moderate one quickly. Lord Northcliffe, who we know from House's diaries, acted with the President's personal friend in mind when writing up his editorials, was a further source of pressure. All the while, financial experts continued to inform the Prime Minister that British coffers could not take the strain incurred by maintaining so many soldiers and so many theatres at once. Industrial unrest at home had actually brought Lloyd George back to London before. Would he have to go again? And was Bolshevism truly creeping across the continent, as the rumours implied? Events of the 21st of March seemed to confirm that they were, and they provided additional grounds for anxiety. In the midst of all these developments, it is hardly surprising that Lloyd George wanted to hold off on making a solid decision on reparations. Yet it is surprising that since the ball came very much from his court, it is conventionally assumed that the French were to blame for any and all difficulties emerging from the reparations settlement. In the context of arriving at moderate German terms which would not engender bitterness and which would remove the Rhineland from the grasping hands of the French, Lloyd George worked to develop what we were introduced to before, the Fontainebleau Memorandum. That memorandum, we learned, was special because while it argued against extensive territorial penalties being imposed upon the Germans, it was mostly silent or vague on the question of reparations. Yet in the histories, the Fontainebleau Memorandum is often trotted out as an example of the Prime Minister's moderation in comparison to Clemenceau's extremism. By now we're aware that this picture is unfair and inaccurate, but I simply cannot resist sharing some details on how that Fontainebleau Memorandum was actually produced. Traditionally, of course, committees or commissions sat together and banged out the details, but over the weekend of the 22nd and 23rd of March, the British delegation tried a very different approach. They essentially played the delegation game for an afternoon. No, seriously, they legitimately did. This magic happened in a swanky Parisian suburb of Fontainebleau, in the Hotel de France d'Angleterre. 
In the sumptuous grounds, the delegation walked and took in the fresh air in peace, only to return that afternoon to Lloyd George's private sitting room, where a scene that was made for television played out. The purpose was the same as before, to take a fresh look at the whole treaty as it then stood, and to reach some kind of final decision which all of the big three could accept. In line with this aim, Lloyd George assigned each member of the delegation who was present a role, as an ally or as an enemy power, and he urged them then to state their case. I would absolutely have loved to have been a fly on the wall for such an exercise, but the star of the show was reportedly General Sir Henry Wilson, who had sat in mostly quietly on the countless Council of Ten meetings by this point. In a bid to get into character for the roles he had been chosen for, Henry Wilson turned his military cap back to play a German officer and recorded how he behaved then in his memoirs. I explained my present situation and my wish to come to an agreement with England and France, but I saw no hope, for I read into the crushing terms they were imposing on me as determination on their part to kill me outright. As I could not stand alone, I would turn to Russia, and in course of time would help that distracted country recover law and order, and then make an alliance with her. Not content to merely play the enemy, Henry Wilson then switched to the victim when he took on the role of a French woman, painting a moving picture of the losses of so many of their husbands, sons and menfolk, the unbearable anxiety and long separations, the financial losses and the desperate struggle to overwork to keep their homes going. The whole scene must have been an absolute riot, but the tone never descended into anything approaching silliness somehow. Lloyd George gave his two cents, but unfortunately not as any kind of character, he simply played himself, and he reasoned that his major point was that the peace terms could not destroy Germany. It was up to Lloyd George's private secretary, Philip Kerr, to make some sense out of what had taken place, but his work on Monday the 24th of March formed the nucleus of the Fontainebleau Memorandum. The journey to produce this memorandum had been bizarre, but here Lloyd George possessed a statement of aims and of approach which would be useful, and which gave him a chance to take the focus off reparations and highlight the political arguments when he said, You may strip Germany of her colonies, reduce her armaments to a mere police force, and her navy to that of a fifth-rate power. All the same, in the end, if she feels she had been unjustly treated in the peace of 1919, she will find means of exacting retribution from her conquerors. This was a prophetic statement indeed, and it revealed in a pinch what action Lloyd George believed should be taken, and what he believed did not factor into the equation. Note that Lloyd George does not state, you may place at Germany's feet a whopper indemnity. He changed the debate to political and territorial settlements, because he knew that the French were asking for a lot in that theatre, whereas Britain simply wanted Germany's badly managed and abused colonies. In light of what had occurred in Hungary, Lloyd George also stressed the danger of Bolshevism, conveniently placing the spotlight onto that feared creed rather than on the less exciting reparations question. The exercise demonstrated Lloyd George's political acumen because he knew that Wilson was on his side with the notion of minimal territorial changes, and that the president would have preferred to have larger reparations if that meant that peoples were not ruled by foreign nations. If you find the peace too harsh... Clemenceau fought back. Let us give Germany back her colonies and her fleet, and let us not impose upon the continental nations alone the territorial concessions required to appease the beaten aggressor. The idea that Germany would not return for revenge if no land was taken was, Clemenceau insisted, a sheer illusion. 
Lloyd George was certainly up to something in the last few days of March 1919. It seems that he succeeded in changing the argument and in refocusing the spotlight onto Franco-American tension over the Rhine, where in previous weeks the French and Americans had found common ground over reparations. Clemenceau was caught in a significant bind in this respect. He firmly believed that by harnessing the power of the Rhineland and Tsar to her benefit, France would be safe and Germany would be denied a place from which to attack France from. Just as the seas protected the other two allies, France needed her sea along the Rhine. Wilson did not feel he could give that, but because Britain's demands did not conflict with his stated principles, he could give Lloyd George virtually all of what he wanted. Lloyd George also suspected, correctly as it turned out, that by the time reparations were finalised in their conclusions during the Reparations Commission of 1921, Britain would be in a position to get what it wanted once more. Lloyd George did not want to destroy Germany on land, and he imagined that German markets would be much more susceptible if Britain didn't attempt to restrict the lands of the 70 million Germans now. Previous statements of friendship and support for Clemenceau's position and for French security vis-à-vis Germany had been abandoned, and while the French Premier was outraged, he found that Lloyd George was merely the face of a British policy, which was in general blithely indifferent to French security interests. Whether it was possible or not, many in Lloyd George's government imagined that it would be advisable to withdraw somewhat from the continent into the empire, like a kind of splendid isolation part two. This segment of opinion upheld that it was important not to leave a lasting scar on Franco-German relations by creating another Alsace-Lorraine, and that philosophy was sound enough, but Lloyd George was perfectly content to inflict another scar on German pride when he insisted upon postponing the reparations question until he was in a position to leverage a satisfactory answer out of it. Why was it acceptable for Britain to have its way with reparations, but unacceptable for France to protect itself by imagining new state structures along the Rhine? The simple answer is that Lloyd George did not believe reparations would be too much of an issue, or that it would foster the same resentment as the seizure of territory. After all, he could point to recent history to justify this perspective. The French had burned at the loss of Alsace-Lorraine, not at the indemnity of 5 billion francs, which they had paid off within a few years. Based on that logic, it seems at least partially fair to suppose that Lloyd George was acting on the basis of good faith and past evidence, but he had certainly done a suspiciously good job manoeuvring the French and Americans into conflict over the Rhine, where once the Anglo-American camp had suffered over reparations. As Lloyd George correctly anticipated, Clemenceau's anxiety over the Rhine question would do most of his work for him. On the morning of the 28th of March, the greatest blow-up between the French and Americans yet took place when Wilson insisted incorrectly that the French had never placed the Tsarland among their war aims and that it was contrary to the 14 points. Rather than tell the President simply to stick to his 14 points in his blasted League of Nations, which is certainly what Clemenceau wanted to do, the French Premier upped the ante by accusing Wilson of being pro-German. With palpable tension in the room, Wilson effectively called Clemenceau a liar and insisted that the French Premier wanted him to leave the conference and return to the United States. This was in fact correct in a sense. Clemenceau had always found House much easier to deal with than the President. Clemenceau was too busy storming out of the room to comment though. He raged to a subordinate that he had never expected such immovable opposition to French demands. It must have seemed especially unfair considering the fact that Britain, up to this point, had gotten virtually all that it had wanted. 
In that afternoon's meeting, apologies were mumbled and Wilson did try to reach some kind of compromise with Lloyd George's actual help. The Tsarland could be autonomous and the French could own its mines. How about that? It was said that the experts would look into it. Clemenceau was all politics, speaking here about the ties which bound Americans and Frenchmen together, but in private he fumed about Wilson's intransigence. Wilson followed the same tactic, proclaiming that afternoon the extent of France's greatness for all to hear, but complaining bitterly that evening to a friend that Clemenceau was akin to an old dog holding up the progress of the conference with his outdated demands. On the 31st of March, Marshal Foch made a case once more for the creation of a separate buffer state. The peace, Foch said, can only be guaranteed by the possession of the left bank of the Rhine until further notice. That is to say, as long as Germany has not had a change of heart. The British and American leaders looked on with polite and silent disinterest. By the final week of March, it had started to become apparent that in spite of the reparations blow up, a chasm was beginning to open up, not between Britain and America, but between America and France. Combined with the increasingly intense schedule, where the Council of Four was meeting several times a day by the last few days of March, it was clear that fatigue was also setting in, but the strain seemed especially notable on the American president's face. Lloyd George had been energised by his successes and distractions, and George Clemenceau had been energised in his own right, purely because he now had to fight harder than ever before for his rights. Woodrow Wilson, though, was caught in the middle, having never had a clear vision beforehand about where he stood on all of the questions put forward by the Allies. What Wilson desired was the solid creation of a League of Nations, and to lesser concern, the repayment of American loans. Neither of these goals, you'll notice, provided America with any net gains, in the same way that territorial gains in Europe or colonies or even reparations did. For Wilson to feel like he had gained something from the peace negotiations, he would have to be confident that the Allied leaders were content to see things his way, but it was impossible for him to persuade them on every point, especially when those points related to their perceived national interests. Thus, it made sense that Wilson would cleave to the more agreeable Allied leaders. He found such a man in Lloyd George, especially since reparations were effectively taken out of the equation for the moment, and colonies were also quietly put on the back burner. Clemenceau was disagreeable because his demands were less palatable, but also because they were far more urgent, and it was less easy to compromise upon them. If Lloyd George failed to grab this colony or that mandate, so what? British security would not be unduly compromised. Yet a failure to secure the Rhineland or to keep a handle on Germany's industrial capacity would leave that front door open to an invasion of France through the same route as before. A few minutes ago we proposed the idea that Lloyd George didn't imagine reparations would be such a big issue because in 1871 it had been the seizure of Alsace-Lorraine rather than 5 billion francs that had truly mattered. At the same time, though, it is also worth pointing out the inverse of this for Georges Clemenceau's case. Since France had paid off that indemnity and emerged mostly unhampered within a few years, it stood to reason that Germany would follow suit. If the bill was impossibly high, France would have no trade income or possibility of drawing reparations of any kind as Germany collapsed. However, this logically followed that only a medium sum would be possible, and no medium sum could keep Germany low forever. The only approach that could was to seize some of her border lands and establish some kind of buffer. Clemenceau would have reacted angrily to the suggestion that this policy mirrored Germany's seizure of Alsace-Lorraine in 1871. France wasn't looking for conquest now, she was looking to acquire security. In such a way does it become apparent that reparations, while a nice boon to French coffers, was in fact 
far indeed from the be-all and end-all mission of a vengeful French premier. With that substantial note made, we're going to put a pin in the reparations issue for the moment. Just like we also placed matters like the Supreme Economic Council and Ireland and the Polish border and other simultaneously occurring events in the background, we now relegate reparations to that position. But don't worry, we'll return to it in time, in late April, to conclude on the truth behind the final figure of $34 billion or so in reparations, which was eventually decided upon in spring 1921. In the next episode, we resume our coverage of the Big Three's relations, and with reparations for them also kicked down the road for a while, it was made quickly very clear that there was no shortage of other matters in play that could evoke anger, bitterness and suspicion among the British, American and French in the first week of April 1919. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 